This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Welcome to Beehive Banter, heading to, well, in this very special Right Royal Weekend, where some of the few not, in fact, coming to you from Pall and London as their majesties get ready for their coronation. Back here is where we are with the commoners. That is MBR's political editor, Brent Edwards, and myself as we toil away, as, of course, we're only a few months away from our own coronation of sorts, the anointing of our next Prime Minister. And this year uh, of political giving continues. This week, with claims of Labour abandoning hard-working people, claims we only have a year to wait until things get better, and this week's political bombshell, boom, out of the blue, Mecca Faiteri, jumping waka or ship to Te Māori, planned by the look of things timing-wise so the PM was out of the country. Not that it mattered, because she didn't tell anyone anyway. Planned by the look of things to try and avoid being kicked out of Parliament. Even Labour's Maori caucus taken by surprise. Oh, where to start, Brent? Let's start with, mm, I don't know, the timing. Well, the timing is very interesting. As you say, the Prime Minister out of the country, he has no idea... And, you know, every other Labour MP said they had no idea that um, Mika Fateri didn't speak to anyone, she didn't alert them, didn't warn them, um, hasn't even had the courtesy of, since announcing it, making contact. Um, so, but, but it is interesting. I mean, Labour, though, is, um, while shocked and surprised, um, the language is pretty muted. They're sad, they're disappointed, but it doesn't go beyond that um, because clearly they don't want to burn bridges with, with her, or more importantly... So with, she can get away with it. Yeah, well, yeah, but more importantly with Te Pāti Māori. And so, um, you know, they want to retain those relationships because the likelihood is, after the election, if Labour is to form a government, it, more likely than not, probably will need Te Pāti Māori support. <laughs> so. More likely than not. It will. All right. What about the fact that Labour actually had to find out all of this through gossip? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, that's just outrageous. Well, it there is, are protocols. Well, there are protocols. I mean, and that's the sense of how, you know, one, most people think the political process should be done. But it is interesting, I think, because if you look at and listen to and read Maori perspectives on um, Mika Whaiteri's, um departure from Labour, they're quite different, really, from Pakia perspectives. Um, and, and some people see the sense of what she's done um, while I guess from, you know, the sort of more mainstream media, Pākehā media, there's probably a different perspective of saying, oh, you know, it's it's, it's sort of kind of stabbed Labour in the back, um, it's left them sort of um, lurching with, you know, not knowing what was going on and still without actually a full explanation about why at this point she's left Labour to join to Pākehā. Well, yeah, I'm not sure she has because, you see, under the walking jumping legislation, she should have been basically kicked out. But now, of course, there's, there's major confusion over what she said to the public and then what she said to the Speaker. And I also heard an interview where it was implied that uh, Te Pāti Māori had been talking to the Speaker all through this process. And it seems to come down to an email versus the legislation that says a letter. Well, because according it, to some, she's still um, no. she's still with Labour. Her vote's not. She's also a member of that. Uh, uh, well, the speaker's explained it. it. It comes down to more the point that supposedly in her communication with the speaker, and and we haven't seen that exactly, and we probably never will. I mean, unless he de- you know decides to release. He it. doesn't have to. Though, does he, he doesn't have to. Um, she hasn't 
resigned from Labor per se. She's just. But she said she'd she, resign well, on, on media. I, I know, but he said it doesn't matter what she says publicly. It's what her communication to him says, and all that says is that she's withdrawn her proxy from Labor. So are you telling me if this was the beginning of a three-year parliamentary term this happened, she could just sit there for, for three well, years, take the money, and nothing happens? I'm not telling you that. The Speaker well, is... Well, I'm now, asking the, you on his... The, 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 talk. The, decision is, the decision is a nonsense. I mean, it is. It's a nonsensical decision, and he's clearly under pressure from uh, National Act. And the Greens asking, how did you come to this decision? Interesting that through that um, questioning of the Speaker over the decision, Labor said naught apart from basically supporting him. Because the other way of actually um, prompting the Walker jumping legislation is for Labor to write to the Speaker and say, hey, one of our MPs has just left. They've resigned. They're no longer Labor. So kick them out. But Labor won't do that because, again, comes back to that issue. They've got to keep to party Māori sweet. They want to see them as a potential partner after the election. Therefore, you know what I'm reminded of when you talk like this? When I said, why don't the National uh, do a deal with Top in, uh, in Island and Christchurch? And you said that would be seen as a cynical move. All I'm hearing coming out of your mouth is Labor being completely cynical. But it is cynical, bit, yeah. We can't have it both ways. You say they shouldn't well, do it because it looked bad in politics and we're just looking at it now. Well, I'm not saying. I've it's the said, same thing. I've said it's a nonsensical decision, and I'm explaining why. Labor's I mean, basically, Mika Fiteri is taking the Mickey out of the rules. Well, yeah. I mean, everyone is. I mean, everyone's agreed that that law is a stupid law, but it's in place. They haven't replaced it and repealed it yet. Presumably, they will one day. So you think while it's there, they'd follow it. All right. Could this backfire on Tapati Mary uh, and, in fact, cost uh, Debbie Ngaruwapaka her job? If the if, if if the two of them get a seat, she doesn't, and the party vote of Te Party Māori is the same as it was last time, they might only be entitled to two seats, in which case she'll be gone. It, look, if the if if Te Party Māori don't boost their party vote, and Mika Fateri won her seat, and um, Rawiri Waititi holds on to his, his seat, seat, which you expect, yep. Um, yep. then that would be the case. But that but the way you're looking at the polling, it would seem likely that um, the Māori Party's vote will go up, party vote will go up anyway. I mean, and Debbie Narewa-Packer has a, a, a reasonable chance of winning her seat yep. as well. So I, clearly you can see that what Party Māori is doing is they are trying to increase their um, presence in the Māori seats and they would want to win and more. And doing a damn good job of it. And want to win more Māori seats. So from from that party's perspective, there's probably more upside than downside. But, but there are risks. And... Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see who Labor put up in Mecca Fiteria sector to, to challenge her. How do the Nats counter this risk? Well, I mean, the Nats can't counter that particular risk there. I mean, they're, no. They're, they're, they're no, but they're sitting there seeing that their you know their odds of taking you know taking well, the reins again diminish. Well, no, because on the other hand, this is you know as you've pointed out, cynical. It's cynical. It's messy. Overall, it's not a good look for Labor, for the government. No. So you'd imagine National will press that point home and, you know, one of the strategies will be that maybe you can drive down the vote of Labor on the back of these sorts of machinations. And so... 
Well, speaking of which, uh, well, farmers have been hard-hearted again. It's, it's been called, in fact, a kick in the guts. David Seymour saying Labor doesn't give us stuff about working New Zealanders doing it tough. Now, this is all about the Transport Minister rejigging the settings of the government's clean car discount, you know, narrowing the range of cars that qualify, although Tesla's still on there, <laughs> and paying for it by charging ute drivers, etc., more. Or, as some have said, taking a vehicle from people who cannot afford it and giving it to people who can already afford it. The Minister has said, no, it's about changing the mindset of everyone, including the well-to-do. Here's what it might change, Brent. People who used to vote for Labour voting for someone else. I feel your pain. I know that gas guzzler of yours has got you worried. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's a possibility, although it seems to, from the response, they've probably annoyed people who were already not going uh, oh, to vote Labour. Yeah, OK. But, um, <laughs> Good so, point. And, and what the... the uh, the, you know, the ironic thing is they're still getting criticism from those probably on their side of politics or certainly on the green side of politics who say they haven't gone far enough because that they should actually cut out all hybrids and plug-in hybrids. They shouldn't be getting discounts at all and it should be solely for electric cars. What do we have to say? Because they don't... I don't think anyone should be... Well, I don't think anyone should. That You know, no. it's not necessary. I mean, the whole issue around, if you're looking at climate change policies, ex yeah. viewers that... You wipe everything off the board apart from the emissions trading scheme. Um, briefly, in our recent uh, history, the government, of course, apologised to those Pacific Islanders who suffered through the dawn raids of the 70s. Now it turns out, under the very same government, dawn raids, it seems, are still happening. Brent, how bad does this look? Well, it's not a good look. I mean, although... And, On but so many It seemed to be a shock to the ministers. I mean, it, it appeared they weren't aware of it. I mean, and in part... Oh, how could you not be aware of it? Well, How could you not be aware of the very up, thing your government's apologised well, for if, still I happening? Know, well, if you're not up at 5am in the morning going out with these guys <laughs> ramming, <laughs> down worse. ramming down people's doors, you probably don't know necessarily because these are operational matters. But one would have thought it would have been fairly clear to those organisations, hey, the government's been very clear, it's made this big apology for dawn raids, we should stop doing it. If they were, But now you hear that they're doing it. And again, the main thing is, you know, and the big thing was, so they're largely doing dawn raids on Pacific and some Asian families. Oh, does that make it all right? Well, no, it doesn't, actually, because, again, it's it's the racial profile. I mean, if they were maybe doing dawn raids on lots of white families as well, maybe you'd say, OK. Well, oh, how do but, you know? You're not up at 5 o'clock in the morning. There might be. Well, the numbers, they've, they've disclosed this themselves. So, I mean, oh, so, OK. Well, so, then I was wrong. So, right. so, yeah, but but no, not a great look for the government, and I'd be interested to see what, More bad what, look clear, for the what clear directions is now now going from ministers to their departments, stop this. Labor's not having a good year, uh, which takes me briefly, briefly, because we're running out of time to the recession we're probably already in, with Nicola Willis saying she expects winter to be hard, but she remains confident about the medium-term future as long as the right policies are put in place. And if it's going to be a long, hard winter, and I'm, and I'm not talking about the weather, and there's no sign of recovery, is it again a death knell to the government, or can they actually withstand the heat? as we get closer and closer to the election and things getting more and more expensive. Well, you know, it's not, not necessarily a death knell because, you know, the polls are still showing you know, up reasonably strongly for Labour, considering. But obviously it makes life tougher. And that's why I think, you know, the, the budget in a couple of weeks' time is going to be probably perhaps more important in the past because what will be in it to show that actually they are doing more to tackle those cost-of-living pressures at the same time as the Prime Minister has promised a no-frills budget. It's a very delicate balancing act. All right, next week, what's happening? Anyone else going to jump ship? Uh, we well, know Kerry Allen's not. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we, we weren't expecting Mecca Fateri, I guess, so who knows? But, I mean, you know, we'll expect the um, Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, who, who de- who's departing, who's departed for, for London as well, to be back from the coronation. So, um, you know, I guess it'll be, we'll have our first question time for about four weeks where perhaps they may face off against one another and some of the issues that you've raised may well come up. Oh, well, I'll tell them to raise them if they weren't going to. That is BI banter in the year of unrelenting turmoil and trouble, and mark my words, floating mortgage rates with a nine in front of them now, Brent. A nine? Nine. You, you... I've been right every other time I've made a prediction. All right, quite possible. Thanks so much for taking the time to read, watch or listen as usual. We really appreciate it. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Last week, the Climate Change Commission warned that more needed to be done faster to reduce the country's greenhouse gas emissions. I'm joined by Climate Change Minister James Shaw. Look, a big part of the Commission's thing too was the need for for greater certainty, and I think that echoed um, a report that came out earlier that day from the um, Sustainable Business Council and the Climate Change Leaders Group, you know, which was talking about the election and wanting greater investment certainty for businesses. I mean, how much of an issue is that to ensure that you get private investment into um, lowering emissions, that you you need to create greater certainty? It's absolutely critical. Uh, And it's why I worked so hard in our first term on ensuring that the Zero Carbon Act was a bipartisan piece of legislation. I mean, I was delighted that it went through third reading uh, without... Um, any opposition at all. And I think uh, what I have heard from industry as a result of that is that they have felt um, able to make some very significant investment decisions. Now, you know, my read of the Sustainable Business Council's um, kind of piece of advice last week is that they are a bit worried when they hear noises, for example, from the ACT Party who say that they want to uh, repeal the Zero Carbon Act, uh, dismantle the Climate Change Commission, you know, unwind all of that infrastructures, that then places billions of dollars of investments that have already been made at risk. Uh, and it creates a lot of uncertainty, which means that not only do you get more, do you get less investment in the green economy, you also get less investment uh, in the kind of fossil fuel part of the economy as well, because people just aren't sure which way it's going to go. Um, And so, you know, I think the sense is that they want to make sure that if there is a change of government, uh, that uh, the the kind of framework um, that we've built up over the last five years will be adhered to. But even within that framework, I think from the Climate Change Commission's draft advice, they're clearly suggesting there needs to be some greater certainty given around that in terms of the investment environment. And obviously they've got clear concerns about the emissions trading scheme. Yes, well, so there's two things in there, one of which is about the certainty of advice. And, um, you know, I think we've heard uh, pretty strongly from the market that they want to know uh, that, you know, the government of the day, whether that's us or another government, uh, will uh, kind of maintain the direction of travel that the commission are guiding us on. Um, and I, you know, I can I only agree with that. You've heard me say many times that I would like that framework to be even stronger than it currently is in terms of maintaining its political neutrality. Um, but the other piece of advice is that they've given us very strongly is around the emissions trading scheme, as you say. 
Uh, it's actually the third time that they have given us a warning that the current settings of the ETS will limit its effectiveness. But the evidence base in this most recent round is, you know, it builds much more on what we have seen previously. Having said that, the government did take uh, their advice the first time, and we have committed to a review of the emissions trading scheme, um, which hasn't started yet, but uh, that will that will kind of kick off in, in coming months. Um, and we will be looking at that supply and demand equation, which is what they are so worried about. And I mean, clearly they're worried too that it encourages much more planting of forests uh, to sort of reach the net target, but takes the focus off actual reducing gross emissions. Do you, do you share that concern? Uh, yes, I do. I've, I've shared that concern for a long time. Um, the, I mean, essentially what the Commission is saying is that, you know, New Zealand has in legislation a net reductions target, but what they're saying is that the, um, the unless you reduce your, unless you focus on reducing your gross emissions, you won't hit the net emissions reduction target. Uh, so removals, from the atmosphere through forestry and other means are important. You know, it's critical because that's the amount of, what's the total amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. But what they're saying is that you're not going to be able to hit your long-term target unless you stop putting CO2 into the atmosphere in the first place, which, you know, in many ways is a statement of the blinding obvious. But New Zealand's policy settings, particularly around the emissions trading scheme, were developed in the 2000s uh, under the Kyoto Protocol rather than in the 2020s under the Paris Agreement. And so there is a bit of a mismatch uh, there. And, 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 you know, again, we've kind of agreed that we should uh, do a review of, uh, of those settings. Because is there a danger that in terms of um, its encouragement or incentives for investment that, you know, a number of businesses might think, well, we'll just keep on planting trees on some land we buy rather yes. than anything about actually reducing their own emissions in whatever process that they're using? Yes, that's right. And and actually, if you if you went back to the original settings of the ETS back in the in the two thousands, that was actually the assumption. You know, the idea that all three of the main gases were fully fungible, that the that the policy intention was the lowest cost abatement anywhere in the world, uh, rather than domestically, and uh, that the net number was the most important number. And and essentially, uh, and you know, Greens at the time argued this. Uh, what that created was the possibility of a get out of jail free card where you don't actually have any sort of structural change in your economy, you kind of carry on as normal and you just plant some trees to kind of offset those emissions. Now, you know, the world has moved on considerably since 2008 um, and, and the Paris Agreement, uh, you know, really to say, well, actually your domestic emissions are important, your gross emissions are important, we need to stop putting pollution into the atmosphere in the first place. Now, removals, like I say, are still important. You know, they're, they're critically important, actually. Um, but uh, if you only look at one side of the equation, you're just not going to get there. And, I mean, are you, I mean, clearly the Commission says, you know, that while we're travelling in the right direction, we're not going fast enough. Do, do you have a sense that in terms of the, the investments, the critical investments that need to be made, you know, across industry and businesses, that, that that is starting to step up, that, you, that you're that you seeing that sort of innovation? Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, I guess one of the, the privileges of my job, um, whilst there is a ton of bad news uh, when it comes to climate policy and action, uh, and, you know, all these incessant reports um, giving us these kind of increasingly dire warnings, I also do get to see where things are starting to go right. 
Uh, and here in Aotearoa, there have been a number of significant investments by businesses, large and small, um, including some quite adventurous plays. For example, you know, Sounds Air and Air New Zealand investing in short-range um, electric passenger aircraft. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. The the fact that we've now got um, electric ferries on the water, passenger ferries on the water in Wellington, and we're going to have them in Auckland soon, the hundreds and hundreds of electric buses that are being bought in around the place, and the wildly successful conversion of our light vehicle fleet uh, through the clean car discount. You know, you can see that, you know, people... Uh, whether they're in kind of household decision-making processes uh, um, or small businesses or, or large corporations uh, are really starting to uh, to move on this. Um, it, we are very late as a country getting started on this, uh, and it takes a while for that momentum to build up in the economy. And then, of course, we've had some derailments recently with the supply chain disruptions from COVID. So that's had a, a drag effect. But ultimately, uh, you can really get a sense that the direction of the economy is starting to shift. But that all puts pressure too, though, doesn't it, on ensuring that you get a greater development uh, and building of renewable electricity generation to yes. meet what will be a growing demand for electricity. So, I mean, are, yes. you comfortable, are you comfortable you've got that balance right? Well, you know, I would describe this as a high-quality problem. You know, if, if we're kind of saying that um, some of our policy shift has been so wildly successful, it's creating another problem, which is more demand for renewable electricity, uh, then, you know, we absolutely do need to respond to that. And that's a better problem than the problem that we had before, which is that, that we weren't doing anything. So, um, so yes, uh, it is clear that, um, we, that we do need uh, pretty significant systemic change in our electricity grid uh, in order to meet that um, actually present, not just future demand, but present demand growth as as well. And, and I would say that that has to be a priority and it is one of the priorities in the Commission's most recent draft advice. I mean, obviously a lot of focus on rebuilding from the Auckland floods and Cyclone Gabriel and a lot of talk about how you adapt to the effects of climate change. But are you also confident that in rebuilding back um, that the infrastructure will be not just more resilient to climate change, but also be more friendly to climate? Well, it certainly should be. Uh, and, and I think it's really important that as we uh, do, you know, put in place the program for uh, rebuilding, you know, infrastructure that we've lost as a result of those site plans or actually just the next generation of infrastructure that we need to replace the kind of very creaky uh, infrastructure that we already have, whether that was cyclone damaged or not, uh, you know, I, I do think that we should have essentially in, built into our procurement process a requirement that uh, we have the lowest carbon, you know, lowest embedded carbon option um, uh, should be part of the part of the decision making process. And I think that's I think that's really really critical because it would be quite easy for us to go uh, around and build a whole new generation of uh, of infrastructure whilst we're trying to create the low carbon economy and accidentally, you know, increase our emissions uh, whilst we're at it. So just finally, what's your message for businesses who might be kind of, um, I suppose, teetering about whether they need to invest in stuff to go low carbon or not, while as they look at what might be happening to the emissions trading scheme? I mean, what's the advice for businesses when they're considering their investments over the next few years? 
Well, I mean, my, my advice would be look at what's going on in the rest of the world. You see a huge rush towards decarbonisation um, and the really big economies, the European Union uh, and the United States, um, Australia, Canada, you know, who, who we kind of, um, you know, we're obviously not in the same kind of class as them, but, but we've got similarly structured economies. They are making massive and rapid and very aggressive plays in decarbonisation. And actually, that is also cutting costs because, you know, solar power is already the cheapest form of energy ever created by the human race. Uh, it beats every other category. And so that is both decarbonisation and it is cost cutting. And so that then generates economic returns in those investments. And if you kind of hold on to the status quo of high carbon operations, whatever that is, at a time when fossil fuel costs are going up, you sort of, you know, that's that's a bad economic decision, uh, regardless of its impact on the climate. And so, you know, I, I, what I would say is that that is the way that the world is going. And I think any company that's considering investing in decarbonization should also consider that that is an investment in better returns. James Shaw, thank you for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Dairy company Southern Pastures Group is keen on talking about how farmers can cut their emissions without cutting their profits. I'm joined by its executive chairman, Prem Mahan. So how can farmers, I guess, cut, cut emissions but, but still retain production, productivity and profit? Thanks, Brent. There are many ways of doing it. I guess from our point of view, when we started Southern Pastures, it was with a vision of just taking a holistic view. And for us, it was trying to produce health-giving dairy products to consumers seeking values for money. And by values, I guess it's not just about climate change, but it's about biodiversity and it's about preserving the land for future generations. So, um, so by taking a holistic view, so one of the first things we did was to um, stop using PKE. So with PKE, for example, you immediately reduce your global carbon footprint. So it's not necessarily a New Zealand carbon footprint. Um, and in terms of what we're doing on our farms, we do a lot of native planting. So in Canterbury Farms, for example, we plant native plants uh, three rows deep. Um, so that's obviously a significant expense. And in in terms of, um, sorry, Brent. And we, so, sorry, on that too, you, you've made a very conscious decision that you don't use exotic forests in any way as an offset, do you? Um, no, we don't use it as offset, but we do, on our way, of farms that were converted from pine forests. Uh, we do have some pine left, but we use it for timber. So we're not opposed to pines, but, you know, we think as for timber, it is fine, but not for uh, offsetting. So what we're trying to do is to try and land to farm within our means. So all our farms are now certified carbon reduced by 22. So that means we're actually on a certified program to become carbon neutral over time. Um, so the other things that we're doing is we have um, retired a lot of land to native plantings um, and every opportunity we get. So for example, in Canterbury, where we have irrigation, um, where the irrigators can't go. So within the gaps, we always plant permanent native plants. Um, so that's to try and preserve as much, it's as much about carbon as it is about biodiversity. Um, so we're trying to do that. The other things we're doing is we do we're trying to do multi-species pastures. We're trying to put deeper rooted plants. So that's a way of actually getting carbon deeper into the soil. 
we're using plantain, and that's, we started that a long time ago, but now there's a lot of research that shows that plantain helps reduce um, you know, emissions, helps retain nitrates in the soil, and we use um, catch crops, for example, um, that are this, at the end of the season that helps you keep your kind of keeps your emission in the ground. And my particular passion, I guess, uh, kind of my first job was at Lincoln College, and I became fascinated by soil biology. So in Waikato farms that were converted, as I said, from pine forests, uh, it was devoid of soil biology. So we introduced 400 tons of earthworms onto those farms, um, and we helped to bring dung beetles into New Zealand along with Manaki Fenua. So if you think about it, uh, cows and grasses and earthworms evolved together, which were introduced to New Zealand, but we forgot to introduce dung beetles. So we helped introduce, introduce them into New Zealand. The wonderful thing about dung beetles is they actually drag carbon down up to 1.2 meters. Um, so a lot of scientists will tell you that carbon can't go, New Zealand soils can't take carbon below 12 centimeters, but we've actually got proof that we can take it down a lot deeper. So it's all about keeping the poop in the loop, if you like. It's, you know, which is very, very, um, in the end, all those nutrients are very valuable on farm rather than off farm. So the last thing we want to do is to have them run off the farm. Um, the other things that we're doing is we, we're very happy to trial things. So we're trialing putting biochar on some of our farms. So by putting biochar, we're physically putting carbon into the soil, but more importantly, the biochar absorbs nutrients. So it helps keep the nutrients on farm. Um, we're also trialing prebiotics. By feeding prebiotics to the cows, it helps reduce um, the methane emissions that the cows have. We're also only breeding from our best cows. So that means each year the genetics of our replacement cows are going to get better and better. We're also doing a trial with LIC and Risington in terms sorry, of non- Sorry, can I just sorry. cut? cut sure. yeah, I mean, Prem, with all of this, so are you able to do all of this and also maintain profitability? I mean, what's the cost cost benefit of it? Um, we are able to maintain profitability. So it's, I mean, all the... So I guess the advantages we have is we've got long-term vision. So we are lucky that we've got pension fund investors who are willing to back a long-term vision. So in the long-term, sustainability is a tool to long-term profitability. If you want to make profitability in the short term, then yes, you could say it's a cost. But in the long term, by making your farms more sustainable, it means you will actually be far more profitable in the long term because your inputs will be lower because if it means it allows you to survive through droughts for example by having deeper rooted plants when you know when the rains don't fall your farms will actually do better because the deep rooted plants will survive through droughts so it's it's a way of increasing profitability in the long term and making your farms more resilient um, so to us it's we don't see it as a cost we actually see it as risk management yeah. Um, well, from yep, sorry. sorry, from twenty twenty five, you know, farms are going to have to be pricing and measuring emissions. What, what's your view of what's proposed so far under Hawaka Ikenoa? Um, we don't agree with Hawaka Ikenoa. We our view is that it should actually be discarded. Um, we think the whole premise behind Hawaka Ikenoa was wrong. Um, we actually think the people who devised it did, did a great job, but the premise they were given was wrong. Um, you know, we're not in a canoe 
in New Zealand, it's not just a single canoe that we're in. We're actually in a planet, we're in a spaceship called Earth. And we need to think about the whole Earth, the planet, and we're not we can't think of just climate change. You know, there's a bigger threat to life on this planet, and that's biodiversity. And that gets very little focus in New Zealand. So we need to think of the planet's climate change. We need to think of the planet's biodiversity needs. And we also need to think of the planet's um, protein needs. So there's a study that's just come out by FAO, which is the United Nations, only last week. And it actually has changed the thinking up till now, you know, one of the theses was that people need to eat less animal protein. Well, that study actually says that even today, uh, people need far more animal protein than they're actually eating. So, and, and and contrary to what has been said in the media, say some of the media, a OECD study has said there will be carbon leakage from New Zealand if we actually if we reduce our production here, which is one of the solutions that the only solution we have at the moment of meeting here Wakakanoa targets. So if we reduce um, our production here, a th- more than a third of that carbon will be leaked to less efficient countries. So the planet will actually be worse off. But the other two thirds won't actually be produced. So the planet's um, protein needs won't actually be met. So what we need to do is to actually find a way that we can actually produce more and produce that sustainably. So I'm not saying that we can't do better. We have to find a way of doing better, of reducing our footprint and actually producing more. So, I mean, you you seem to be at the forefront of some of this work, but are are enough other farmers um, committed to these changes? So what we believe we need to do is actually come up with a different mechanism. And we believe that mechanism is a cap-and-trade system, a cap-and-trade system that actually includes biodiversity credits. Um, and if we go back in time, the cap-and-trade system helps solve acid rain. Most people, most young people today probably don't remember acid rain, but that's because that problem has been solved. It was solved using cap-and-trade system. And before people think it's some crazy left-wing idea, it was actually devised by Preston Reagan and his team. That's the older Preston Reagan, and environmentalists. So it's almost like, um, you know, if the ACT Party and the Green Party and the Maori Party got together and devised a plan. So, you know, so it's a plan that actually works. And I mean, you're an economist, Brian. Uh, so if you think of behavioural e- economics, economics, sorry, um, it's you know you, you don't you get the best solution by actually providing carrots. So I think by having that mechanism where good farmers get rewarded and bad farmers actually have to pay essentially a tax by buying credits from good farmers, then I think we'll actually have a mechanism that works. Um, I don't think Hewakekanawa is a mechanism that actually will work. It can only work by driving down production in New Zealand, which is not a solution for the planet and it's not a solution for New Zealand economy. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins has ruled out introducing a capital gains or wealth tax in this month's budget, but will Labour resurrect the policy for the upcoming election campaign? With us now is political editor Brent Edwards. So move over OCR, we all love tax. Yeah, well that's, I mean, you know, that was the big story from last week and it's sort of reverberating on from that release of the Inland Revenue Department's report into what high wealth um, individuals and families paid in tax and what, what their income was. and But of course it's created a lot of controversy and, and disagreement um, 
people arguing that they've been too liberal in the way they have um, kind of sort of defined income. Um, and, you know, I think people jump to the conclusion because of that that um, the government was intent on taxing all capital gain, whether it was realised or not. Mm-hmm. And what more did the tax working group have to say on this matter? Well, if you go back to the, the tax working group, which reported in 2019, and it recommended a capital gains tax, uh, but it was on realised gains, so, and it always excluded the, the family home. But, but say, for instance, you took property, if you, someone had an investment property, when they sold it, then you would work out what is the, the, the capital gain on that property and you would tax that. Um, in effect, though, to be honest, I mean, there is a capital gains tax now on property because you've got the bright line test, which has been stretched out to 10 years. Um, so, so in a way, while the government has said it doesn't you know, support, it, it has, on the property side, pretty much pushed in a, a more comprehensive capital gains tax, but other asset classes aren't, aren't taxed in that way. I mean, and the tax working group put up the argument... Um, essentially around the issue of fairness, that, you know, if someone earned $90,000 a year in a salary or wage, they paid this level of tax, but someone else earning that through capital gains was paying either no tax or a lot less tax, and that wasn't fair. So that was that was the argument that the tax working group put up. They recognised there were some, um, some challenges with the capital gains tax, but despite that, they still, the majority of the members still recommended the government to adopt it. Jacinda Ardern ruled it out, though. Uh, is Chris Hipkins likely to pick it up again? Yeah, well, I mean, Jacinda Ardern ruled it out because in the end she couldn't get the support of New Zealand First to put it through, and there appeared there wasn't great public support for the idea. I mean, Labor had taken it to three elections, or since 2011, 2011, 2014, they'd lost, done badly in those elections, uh, obviously got in in 2017 based on support from New Zealand first. But So in the end, she ruled it out, even though she personally believed in it quite strongly. She not only ruled it out then, but said while she was Prime Minister, boom. The question is, will Chris Hipkins pick it up? Um, for a, a Prime Minister, a political leader, trying to drag, if you like, Labour even further into the centre than it has been, very intent on trying to win a third term... On the surface, it would seem unlikely. You know, why would you go take that route? I mean, there's a lot of contention around a capital gains tax. But going back to the tax working group, it also recommended, while you introduced capital gains tax, that you cut tax rates or or lift thresholds, but basically put more money into the pockets of low and middle income earners through tax cuts. Now... A, a leader who's focused on bread and butter issues? Could you put up a proposal like that where you, you actually effectively did actually boost the incomes of those on low and middle incomes by cutting tax rates while you introduced a capital gains tax? Maybe it would look a little bit more attractive in that sense. So is tax a bread and butter issue that will go to the election campaign? Well, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be a big part of the election campaign, although much of it will depend, because I think National is obviously running the kind of the story that you can't trust Labor on tax and that they're going to tax you more and tax you more. Um, just how big an issue will be will, will depend a bit on what policy Labor puts up. I mean, if they do put up a capital gains tax or a wealth tax of some sort, that'll really give it impetus. But clearly, you've still got this big difference between Labor and the Greens, I guess, on one side, who would tax more, more progressive tax system, and got you've got national promising tax cuts and ACT obviously would go even further. 
Uh, but, you know, Labor could undercut some of that ground if, for instance, as I said, they put up some sort of package where you introduce a capital gains tax, but you do cut tax rates, particularly for those on low and middle incomes. Mm. Brings Edwards, thank you. Finance Minister Grant Robertson will deliver his sixth budget in a little over two weeks from now. But MBR columnist Bridget Morton argues this budget is a greater test for Prime Minister Chris Hipkins than it is for Grant Robertson, and she joins me now. Okay, why? Well, essentially this is Hipkins' first budget, but also he's been the big one doing all of the rhetoric around what's going to happen. So normally this is the Minister of Finance's sort of season to shine as such. But everyone's seen Robinson. He's kind of branded, I think, perhaps with um, some of the old things about big big spender and you know, racking up debt. You know, Hipkins is really trying to change the narrative on this Labour government. So he's the one being at the front saying, you know, this is no frills, it's focused on bread and butter issues. So he's really making it his budget rather than Robinson's. But again, I guess I come back to whether he's really made a substantive change from what Jacinda Ardern was doing. And if you think about the no frills budget, I've got to say Grant Robertson has been saying for some time, this is not going to be a big spend budget. We, you know, we've, we've got to be responsible and stuff. And I mean, he hasn't used the term no frills, but it's been very much gearing up to say, well, there's not a lot of money to spread around. We, you know, we're going to have to be responsible. Yeah, but Grant Robinson, frankly, always says, you know, I'm not going to spend that much money. This is not going to be a big spending budget. That's always his rhetoric because he's always tried to, since he came in, claim the economic credentials off national, which he did for a good period there. So I think, you know, that's what he's always saying. He's often blown what his operating allowance, you know, has been. So for Hipkins to really demonstrate that or try and show that this is a different kind of government, he really has to be the, the salesperson of Budget 23. But at the same time, and he's looking ahead to an election that he wants to, you know, win or at least be in a sense that he can form a government as Labour with, as the lead party. Um, can he do that if he's going to be really mean-spirited, if you like, and really no frills? Well, I completely agree with you. I don't think it really will be no frills. I mean, every budget has some you know, nice-to-haves in it, and particularly in the election year. I mean, I think there'll be the standard things that we need in terms of population growth, you know, new classrooms, number of hip operations, that type of stuff. But Hipkins has got to demonstrate in this budget that not only you know the things he doesn't stand for, which is all the things he threw on that policy bonfire, but what does he actually stand for? What is he defining as the key priorities for him going into the election? So he's going to have to put something in there that's going to demonstrate what a third term Labor government might look like. Well, one of the things I've always been been talking about, and a lot of work's been going on, on it, is around making further changes for to working for families. Where you know you can increase the thresholds at which people can earn a bit more money before they start to have it clawed back. Do you see something like that proceeding under Hipkins? I mean, that would meet his bread and butter issues, wouldn't it? Sort of trying to focus on those low income yeah. households. And he has said, you know, that there'll be stuff in there to relieve cost of living pressures. But I think it's not going to be substantial because he's just going to hit up against A, how much he has got a, you know ability to spend, but two, also in terms of inflation. So, you know, whatever he kind of does, it looks like, you know, eking towards sort of big spending, regardless of how much these sort of lower income people need is going to look like it's just going to increase inflation where most people are really concerned about that happening. I guess that might depend on if the numbers are right. You know, people are saying that inflation's peaked, that it's on its way down. So does it give them a little bit of room to move? And and, and the people on those incomes, you think, aren't 
these are really going to feed a lot into inflation, are they? Well, I think we need to just probably differentiate a little bit between what, you know, we'd see the inflation figure that's been reported shows that we've got a slow in the growth of inflation. Inflation is still happening and mm. at a really high rate. So people are still noticing that when they go to the supermarket month on month, that the cost of, you know, their basic items is increasing. So I think they're still feeling that pressure regardless of, you know, sort of the headlines of last sort of week or so that said, you know, inflation is slowing or decreasing or whatever kind of was used. So I think people are not going to be as open to a big spending if they think that it's still going to increase how much the supermarket shop is going to cost. I'm pretty sure that a former finance minister, Sir Michael Cullins, said that budgets don't win elections, but but they can lose them. So what what will be Chris Hipkins' hope out of this budget? What do you think he'll want the sort of headline to be? I think he'll want a really solid, you know, that looks like it's a responsible, mature sort of budget so that it doesn't have sort of some crazy things in there that he has been able to push back on, you know, future ideas that the RNZ TV and Z merger type thing. I think he'll want a kind of a, a boring budget um, to go into, but hidden amongst that will be a whole lot of, I think, you know, spending allowances for local projects or, you know, um, initiatives to help, um, you know, failing businesses and that kind of stuff out. I expect that there'll be something hidden that we won't necessarily see on budget day. Bridget Morton, thank you for your time. In its latest report, the Productivity Commission says current policies won't lift productivity appreciably. I'm joined by Productivity Commission Chair Dr Ganesh Nana. Why, I mean, this is a follow-up to your earlier report on frontier firms, but, but why aren't government policies making that much of a difference yet? Well, I think it's the yet. It's just fairly early to um, to see a difference. It's only two years since we released that Frontier Firms inquiry uh, and the recommendations. And I think that the key thing is that um, there are some foundations being set that do provide opportunities to, to lift that productivity. But at the moment, we see the government's uh, approach lacking key elements and in particular that uh, if we we're concerned about the lack of focus uh, in terms of selecting particular focus areas to um, ensure that we actually get that innovation and that innovation effort to uh, ensure that our frontier firms can actually lift their productivity and and others follow is that is that because um, the, you know the government spreads itself too thinly? And, um, you know, that you need to have that money focused where it's really going to make a difference? Well, it, it's partly that, but undoubtedly we are, um, the government has been um, spreading very thinly our research and science and innovation effort um, across the board. And um, we've had a history of, I think the term we used was sub-therapeutic doses in terms of that effort. And um, we do need to think about uh, focusing it in particular, but also um, ensuring that government together with all of those other players in a successful innovation ecosystem are playing their part. And that's what we're not seeing. We're not seeing the connections, whether it be with the researchers, with industry and business um, and the, the scientists, universities, the uh communities and with Māori, um, there just isn't those connections, that collaborative effort that we see, which is part of that selection of a focus area or focus areas. But I guess, we, you know, you always come back to that argument. Is there a danger that we end up, you know, trying to pick winners and by doing that we miss other opportunities elsewhere? 
Well, there, there's a possibility that we are that we might miss opportunities elsewhere, but you could argue that we're doing that already in not uh, honing our effort and, and selecting those focus areas strategically with enough flexibility to shift as the world shifts. What we're doing is spreading it very thinly and we're not getting we we're not we're not getting any of the the best worlds that we're we are trying to get. Um, the the argument that we're picking winners really doesn't hold water in the sense that we're we're picking everything as a winner at the moment and spreading ourselves so thinly we're not getting the the returns from it. Uh, in terms of that selection of focus areas, we definitely don't want to see that from a top-down perspective. It's not a call for government to select those winners or select those focus areas. It's and as part of what's missing is is that collaborative effort to select um, what are the areas that we've got particular advantages in now and what are the opportunities into the future, and that's bringing together the best minds and the best strategic uh, thinkers in the in the country or you know whether it be industry business communities Māori, universities researchers innovators investors entrepreneurs all of those it's getting that together it's getting that cohesive um strategic direction for those focus areas that is what's missing because is there a danger that we we focus too much on the role of government i mean and even you you hear businesses constantly calling on the government to do this and to do that but uh, I mean, I'm wondering, you know, when you talk about that partnership, whether there's a much bigger role for for businesses and sectors to actually sort this stuff out as well. Well, um, as we've said always, um, innovation um, does come out of business. Innovation comes out of entrepreneurs. It comes out of the researchers and the scientists. Government has a big role to play in in the New Zealand context. Government has the the dollars to to give up, but or not to give up, but to provide. But also, businesses need to come to the table, and entrepreneurs need to come to the table and put in their put their skin in the game as well. And so that's why we, uh, in terms of the current uh, approaches we've got, we're not seeing that um, effort coming in from business. We're not seeing that uh, the opportunities for the the, the co-funding of innovation effort, uh, and 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 that's partly, I think, a reflection of the the lack of connections across that ecosystem that we're trying to develop. Why, I mean, why don't business do more of that? Is it because, you know, there's been an argument for a long time that they've essentially relied on relatively cheap labour to, to drive produ production, you know, but without getting the productivity? Is is that still an issue? I mean, and then that comes back to that argument about wages. If actually wages were higher, would that then be an incentive to actually lift productivity? Well, I think what you're pointing at is it's 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 a combination of all of those things together, along with a whole lot of other things, and taking ourselves outside of that, and actually asking what is the system we want to set up that will uh, encourage innovation and lift productivity in our frontier firms and beyond uh, into the future, and and that's what we're missing. We're missing that future mindset. We're missing the collaborative effort the strategic leadership to say we're going in this direction and we're going to put in place systems, we're going to put in, uh, ensure that business and communities and Māori are at the table and setting that direction. Uh, government will put in dollars, but business needs to put in dollars as well. Um, and, and, and it's that, that, that sense of leadership that's missing, that sense of focus, 
Um, that is missing. We continue to try and do everything. We're continuing to, as you say, as you said before, spread our thing, spread our effort across any everybody, which inevitably means we're spreading it thinly. There isn't that focus. And and dare I say the business and the industry perspective is a little bit from the past, is very much from uh, the focus is on their industry or on their business. Now, we've got enough supports out there for that, but we, we are looking at an innovation ecosystem that goes across the economy that gives uh, everybody that sense of purpose and that sense of direction. So our focus areas, what we call them, they don't necessarily need to be industry-specific. They could indeed be mission-based uh, areas that say we're going in this direction, we are going to... Um, the, and, and I suppose the, the, one of the key ones is how do we respond to climate change? What do we have to do for, for example, managed retreat in terms of building infrastructure, in terms of new ways of building infrastructure, in terms of uh, mitigating it? What do we do to our coastlines to to minimise minimize and mitigate the erosion? All of those sorts of things. If that's our mission, then various industries, not just one industry, but various industries and businesses can see, okay, what part of that, uh, mission am I responsible for? How can I contribute to that mission? What is the innovation required? And whether it comes from entrepreneurs or researchers, universities, Māori, um, it, it's it's that different mindset rather than the, I suppose, the industry policy that is focused on one particular industry and, and not recognising, realising those connections. Well, talking about industry policy, I think we make a comment around the industry transformation plans and that they're not sparking transformational change. Why not? Well, again, it's that the, the lack of focus. I think one of the key things, um, they are particularly generic. I think the they are in various um, stages of development. Some are those, those IT industry transformation plans, some are still only in draft form. I think one of the key things we'd point out is that they are still very much... Um, top down in the context of the decision making is still very much top down held by government uh, and and the other side is we don't see much connection or much uh, funding coming from business there are relatively uh, little funding from government they are not funded very well but there's not also that funding from from business as well the code funding to ensure that there's that partnership and that that's the um, so the industry transformation plans, there's a possibility for them to evolve into particular focus areas, but it requires significant extra funding, significantly better partnerships with business and with researchers, uh, and also a much better, I think, governance framework. So it's not just top down. It is a governance framework that uh, identifies the 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 contributions that are needed from the different all the different players in the system. Anish Nana, thank you for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.